Amen. Such a beautiful psalm. Thank you for remaining standing now as we turn back to our our teaching and preaching through the book of Galatians. We'll begin this morning in covering verses 21 through 31 of chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with me, feel free to follow along. I'll be reading um, from the New King James Version at this point, but we'll be referring to the King James at various points in the sermon. So hear now the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we give you thanks and pray for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to attend both the preaching and the hearing. We're thankful for the truth and fidelity of your holy and errant word. We're thankful that you have elected, called, and regenerated us and have given us saving faith and justified us in your sight. We're thankful for your work of sanctification in our lives and and for Christ who indwells us which is our hope of glory. Grant that as we take heed to your teaching to the Galatian church, that we would not hear merely a set of propositional truths, but that we would believe and trust and see Christ. We ask that you lead us now with humble hearts before your word of truth as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In all of the other religions of the world, man is required to do something to earn his salvation. He may be required to offer his life, to make sacrifices, to surrender his possessions, to give to others, to commit acts of particular kindness, to deny his own evil desires, or whatever the case may be, the list goes on and on. This fallen human tendency certainly found its way into Old Testament Israel and then, of course, into the churches of Galatia. In Israel, before the covenant at Sinai, Abraham and Sarah thought they could lay hold of God's covenant promise by their own efforts. This pattern is found in Abraham's offspring. Think, for example, of Jacob 
who tried to lay hold of the covenant blessing through his deception and cunning. It was not until God wrestled with Jacob in the wilderness and struck his hip that he realized that it was only by God's mercy that he could obtain the covenant blessing and not through his own sinful efforts. Many in Israel thought that by circumcision or by sacrifices they could somehow make themselves fit for God. We also see this works righteousness mindset illustrated in the rich young ruler who asked Jesus, what must he do to inherit eternal life? The answer is always the same. Look to Christ, follow Jesus. Lay aside all of those things which vainly promise to deliver you, those things in which you have foolishly placed your hope and have therefore become idols in your life, and place your hope and faith in the Son of God. It's that simple. Why, oh why, do we continue to prefer heavy burdens to a yoke that is easy? Why would we rather have a list of legal requirements to be followed perfectly? Requirements that we will most certainly fail to keep. Why would we prefer striving in our own strength to simply receiving by faith the gracious gift of life from a Savior who has already kept the law perfectly for us? This is the fundamental point that so many in our day even those within the church fail to see, and this is the precise nature of the gospel. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. In fact, in our own day, even as in Paul's day, the common response is one of unbelief. How can God require nothing in terms of man's own obedience? Would not such a free redemption lead to rampant lawlessness? And Paul addressed this very question in his letter to the Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Our role in salvation is primarily passive. Indeed, we are objects of God's sovereign grace and mercy. The Bible tells us we are dead in our sin and trespasses. Dead people can do nothing. God in His mercy reaches down and brings us out of spiritual death into life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He unstops our ears. He removes the scales from our eyes and enables us to see and hear and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, our faith is extrospective. We look to another for our salvation, to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We can find peace only in the work of Christ. As we come to this last portion of Galatians 4, Paul again references the Abrahamic narrative against the Judaizers, those who were claiming to be experts in the law and the prophets. 
He turns them to the law in order to drive them to grace. We, we need to note up front that this is a difficult passage. It has been the subject of differing interpretations and has been appealed to in a variety of theological controversies, including the debate between covenant and dispensational hermeneutics and among the various republication perspectives. And if you don't know what these debates and controversies are, that's just fine. It may even prove to be helpful as these matters won't color your reading of the text and and you're seeking to understand the point that Paul is here making. As a reminder and, and as a review, Paul is defending the gospel of grace and the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he is needing to bring this defense and teaching to bear in order to root out the false teaching and the influence of certain Judaizers in their midst who were seeking to lay the burdens of meritorious law-keeping upon the Galatian church. In the first part of chapter 4, if you recall, Paul is writing directly to the faithful within the church, reminding them of the gospel that they heard and the gospel that they believed, and warning them of the Judaizers who were zealously courting them with a false gospel. But now as we turn to the text, beginning in verse 21, he turns his attention not to the believers there at the church particularly, but he is answering the Judaizers. He is speaking to the Judaizers. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Put another way, those who depart from the gospel cannot possibly understand the Torah. And to sharpen the law-grace distinction, Paul directs their attention to the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Earlier in the service, we read the story of Isaac's birth from Genesis 21. I trust it's a familiar story to most or all of you. But let's now take a moment to review now and also read about Ishmael from Genesis chapter 16. Beginning at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And then jumping down to the bottom of chapter 16, beginning at verse 15, So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. In order to see what God is doing through Abraham and Sarah, let's sketch out the timeline from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21. Genesis 12, Abram is 75 years old when he heeds God's call and departs Haran and first hears God's promise. Genesis 15, God cuts the covenant with Abram. 
Genesis 16, Sarai gives her maidservant Hagar to Abram, and Ishmael is born to Hagar when Abram is 86 years old. Genesis 17, God gives circumcision as the sign of the covenant to Abram when he was 99, and Sarai is 90, and reiterates his promise to make Abram the father of many nations through a son whom Sarai will bear. God renames Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And in Genesis 21, Abraham is 100 years old when Sarah gives birth to Isaac, the child of promise. So some 25 years pass from God's original call and promise to Abram until the time when Abraham sees the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise in Isaac. Abraham is old, and Sarah is well beyond the years of childbearing. God deliberately brings them through times of trials and testing so that he alone will receive the honor and the glory. And so Paul continues the history and the theology lesson for the Judaizers beginning at verse 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Abraham, the great patriarch, had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And by the way, this is not denying the fact that Abraham married Keturah after Sarah's death and had six sons with her. Paul is here focusing on a particular time in Abraham and God's redemptive story and reminding the false teachers that Ishmael was the son of a slave woman, Hagar, and that Isaac was born of Sarah, a free woman. In particular, it is important to note how Paul distinguishes their births in verse 23. Paul says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, while Isaac was born through promise. Remember that God promised to Abraham that he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Time passed, and Abraham was still childless. So what did he and Sarah do? The very same thing we might do. They took matters into their own hands. They tried to lay hold of God's covenant promise through their own efforts. Sarah instructs Abraham to take Hagar in the hope that she might have a child by her maidservant and thus fulfill God's promise. That Sarah and Abraham tried to lay hold of the covenant promise through their sinful efforts is why Paul characterizes the birth of Ishmael as according to the flesh. In contrast, Isaac was born to the free woman through promise. Although she is not named in the text, it is obvious from the context that the free woman is Sarah, Abraham's lawful wife. These two sons represent a fundamental contrast shaping the whole of redemptive history. Ishmael's birth according to the flesh and Isaac's birth through promise demonstrate the contrast of law and grace. That is Paul's whole point here. Hagar and Ishmael correspond to our striving and trying to achieve salvation apart from works. Ishmael was born in the ordinary way by a slave woman, whereas Isaac was born by promise in the intervention of grace. 
These contrasts, slavery versus freedom, flesh versus promise, are at the forefront of Paul's concern. And Paul is here teaching the Judaizers that they should have known. The contrast between unbelief and faith, between law and grace is demonstrated and is evident throughout all of Scripture. Paul is calling the Judaizers to know and remember the Word. In the garden and after the fall, the law being written upon their hearts reveals to Adam and Eve that they are naked and they attempt by their own devices to cover themselves to keep the law, but blood must be shed and God graciously clothes them in animal skins. God's grace at the beginning. By faith, Noah being graciously warned by God of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And God graciously saved him and his family. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, and Isaac, your seed shall be called. And God graciously provided the ram as a substitute. God graciously preserved His people through His mighty acts He performed at the hand of Joseph and Moses and on and on. Paul is telling the Judaizers that if they had read the Torah with understanding, they would have heard and not fallen into the error of thinking that one could be made righteous by law-keeping in the flesh. Righteousness and justification are all of grace through faith from beginning to end. And Paul goes on to further explain what God has revealed through Sarah and Hagar, beginning at verse 24. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from the... from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And this is the point where we can easily be tripped up or become confused as we read the text. And this can happen in a couple of different places. The first place we need to read with care is in Paul's use of the term allegory in verse 24. I believe that most translations, King James, ESV, NASB, translate the Greek word here as allegory. The New King James is perhaps trying to help us a bit by translating it symbolic. But the Greek word used here is the same word from which we get our English word allegory. That said, we need to understand that Paul is not using allegory strictly in the same sense that we would. For example, Pilgrim's Progress is a very familiar allegory. And it is a fictional story intended to tell of Christian spiritual journey through the use of figures, symbols, and metaphors. These figures, symbols, and metaphors correspond to spiritual truths, but the story is fictional. But Paul is clearly not denying the historical reality of the persons Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael. The way Paul is using allegory more closely aligns with how we would understand types. As Barrett puts it, 
it is not legitimate to impose on Paul's use of the word allegory any modern technical definitions. Had he been using our hermeneutical jargon, Paul would have called it a type. So what is a type? One definition of, of type in this sense is a premeditated resemblance which God has built into the Bible and history to illustrate and teach truth, to make it easier to grasp than if we were only, it were only stated in prosaic and propositional terms. It is a kindness of God to stir our minds and imagination by the use of types, to make an unforgettable impress. I see it as God's way of putting His brand on our brain so that we cannot escape the impact of truth. That's a good definition. Webster's 1828 defines type as a figure corresponding to another figure, that of which the type is the pattern or representation. Thus, the Paschal Lamb in Scripture is the type of which Christ is the antitype. Anybody know if that's still in the dictionary defined that way? I'm not sure that it is. In Scripture, a type always has an antitype. Scripture itself identifies the antitype so that we don't go astray on a wild typology goose chase. Considering the example given in Webster's 1828, we could turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and read, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And see that Jesus is the antitype of the Passover lamb. By the way, what Paul does with Hagar and Sarah, he does as the Holy Spirit-inspired author of God's revelatory word. This is not a liberty that we have as we exegete God's Word. We are not to read into the Word types and antitypes that aren't there, as an aside. <clears throat> the second place folks tend to get distracted in, in this text is in Paul's use of the term covenant. Despite the appearance of the word the in some translations, for these are the two covenants, it is important to note that in the Greek text, no definite article governs the phrase two covenants. And given the context and correspondence that Paul is making, it would be errant and misleading to see the two covenants as referring to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The law given to Moses at Sinai is not a republication of the covenant of works in the sense that it is a parallel or optional means of justification. I need to say that again. Okay, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai is not a restatement, a republication of the covenant of works in the sense that it is a parallel track or an optional, optional means to be justified before God. There is one way to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is one gospel and that is the only way. And so we don't want to form this dichotomy in our head when we read two covenants here. The law, rightly understood, serves the covenant of grace and is not something to meritoriously attach to grace in order to earn favor with God. We should never pit the law of God over and against the covenant of grace. 
How often have you heard that? We should never pit the law of God over and against God's gracious covenant in dealing with His people. The law of God is holy, just, and good. The law was given to Moses to teach the greatness of our sin and misery and thereby to show us our need for the Savior and thus point us to Christ. This is referred to as the pedagogical use of the law. The law was given to restrain evil and to serve as the norm for civil life even after the expiration of the, civil, of the Israelite theocracy. This is known as the civil use of the law. And the law was given to serve insofar as it is a summary of the moral law as the moral norm for Israelites and for New Covenant Christians and to reveal that which is pleasing to God. And this is the normative use of the law. Go back and look up the three uses of the law if you're interested in finding out and reading more. What Paul is teaching here is that the two mothers represent two covenants by which Paul means two antithetical approaches to salvation. There is no third option between those of law and gospel. Hagar points to Sinai and stands for the present Jerusalem with its legalism. Sarah, by implication, points to the heavenly Jerusalem, that is the realm and method of grace. This free Jerusalem is our mother. One gives birth to slaves and the other gives birth to free men. Those who belong to Christ belong to this heavenly Jerusalem. Freedom comes through Christ's redemption from the law's bondage. Hagar and Sarah represent two ways to get the promise. Man's effort to achieve the promise through human agency in the arm of flesh or resting in the hope of faith to receive the promise through the grace and power of God in His perfect timing and in His perfect way. Barrett writes, There was and there will always be a difference between trying to achieve salvation by works and receiving salvation by grace through faith. The one never works, and the other never fails. Paul draws upon a prevalent theme in the Old Testament that reaches a crescendo in the New Testament, and especially here in Galatians, namely the contrast between Sinai and Zion. I like the way the hymn we sang last week, Hail Sovereign Love, describes Sinai. Do you remember it? Indignant justice stood in view, to Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. But at Zion, there is a hiding place. Mount Zion is where God has built His sanctuary high in the heavens. Mount Zion is the final dwelling place of the triune Lord, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the last temple, the temple of Christ who is the chief cornerstone. Zion is where we find rest for our weary souls and the only true satisfaction for our sins. Sinai never works. Zion never fails. Then in verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54.1, part of which we meditated upon this morning. 
Thus it is written, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. And this verse from Isaiah 54, verse 1, comes right on the heels of that great messianic chapter. Bear with me, for who can tire of hearing these words from Isaiah 53? Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare this, his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he has made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he had poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53. And then you turn the page. Isaiah 54. Sing! Rejoice! Is it any wonder that the Spirit led Paul to go to this passage of Scripture? In Isaiah's original context, Israel was in exile because of her disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. She was like an adulterous wife. But in Isaiah 54, God promises that He will take her again as a wife, and she will not be barren any longer. She will have numerous offspring. In the subsequent verses of Isaiah 54, there are hints that point backward to God's covenant with Noah, as well as hints that point forward to the new Jerusalem. And the passage anticipates the very architecture of the new Jerusalem described in the book of Revelation. Even Paul's appeal to this portion of Israel history fits within his argument. Israel, through her attempt to render obedience to the Lord, has merited only exile and curse. 
By contrast, in spite of Israel's disobedience, God, by His grace, will nevertheless redeem His people. He will fulfill His covenant promise. And more to the point of the quotation, the children of promise, those who look to Christ by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, will outnumber those who seek redemption through obedience to the law. Paul goes on to explain in verses 28 and 29 that the Genesis narratives about Abraham reveal reveal even more about the nature of God's covenant promises. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Paul looks back to the narrative and reminds us first of our identity. We, the church, are like Isaac. We are children of the promise because we are born not through flesh and blood, nor the will of the Father, but nor by human decision, but by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1. He explains that Ishmael, the slave child, the child born according to the flesh, persecuted Isaac, the freeborn, according to the promise. Genesis 21.9 reads, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing, mocking, This might at first appear to be insignificant, but Ishmael was scoffing, laughing, ridiculing Isaac. When he did this, he was in effect ridiculing God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. Paul then quotes Genesis 21.10 and verse 30 to draw attention to what happened to Hagar and Ishmael. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Paul emphatically makes his point that the child of Hagar, Ishmael, and all those who seek redemption through their own efforts, efforts which are always tainted by sin, will in no way partake of the covenant blessings which are reserved for the children of promise. Instead, they will be cast out of the covenant community, which was precisely what happened to Hagar and Ishmael. In contrast, Paul reminds the Galatians in verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. In other words, those who look to Christ by faith are the children of promise. For they have been born, not of human effort, but by grace, by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation and justification Come by God's grace alone through faith alone. But just because we are in a sense passive in our salvation as the recipients of God's grace, it does not mean that we are inactive in our Christian lives. As Christians, we have been freed from slavery to serve Christ in righteousness. As Paul elsewhere writes, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so that's the text in chapter 4. We'll turn our attention briefly now to application. I'd like to leave us with a few thoughts to consider. Perhaps they are more along the lines of exhortation than applications. Whatever word you would like to choose there. 
And the first one actually comes from the context of Genesis 21, the passage where Paul references and quotes verse 10. But let's read Genesis 21, 9 through 11 once more. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Abraham was displeased at the request to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And this all makes sense to us if we could just put ourselves in his shoes. In all likelihood, Abraham sincerely, in his deepest part of his heart, believed and he felt that because of his love for his son Ishmael, that they should remain in his household. But as we continue reading to verse 12 of Genesis 21, we see, But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. But God said, but God said to Abraham, and this is our first point, never hold your sincere feelings and beliefs as authoritative over God's Word. We do this more often than we would like to believe, mostly because we haven't bothered to search out God's Word on a matter. Be like Abraham. He yielded and obeyed God rather than his feeling or his sincerely held belief. The second point comes from what God is showing us in the life of Abraham. Can you imagine patiently waiting for 25 years for the fulfillment of God's promise? We can't wait 25 minutes for that text someone promised us to come in. And doing so, doing all of this 25 years in the light of what is seemingly impossible. There's this promise. His wife is old. She's getting older. I'm getting older. In Abraham's case, it was that his 90-year-old wife would conceive and give birth to a son. Abraham and Sarah obviously struggled and even sinned as they waited. Yet Abraham is commended for his faith in Hebrews. So our second point aligns with the words from 2 Corinthians 5-7 as we remember Abraham and Sarah and their story, and that is we walk by faith and not by sight. And I think this is so hard to do. And when we think sight here with Abraham, sight would include all of this that's going on around us, the loud proclamations of counterfeit truth in our culture that stands in contrast to the genuine truth found in God's Word. By faith, we trust and believe His Word. God's Word says, male and female created He them. That is the revealed binary truth, and so we can with confidence declare gender fluidity to be a lie. To provide but one example. The third point of application is, the legalist is never satisfied. The legalist is never satisfied to limit a particular application to himself. 
He always wants to impose it upon others, judge them, and ultimately persecute them. Why weren't the Judaizers satisfied to keep the law and let the Gentile Christians enjoy their liberty in Christ? You ever think about that? Well, they were zealous for the law and merely trying to honor God in their application, some might say. But Paul replies, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? The Judaizers should have known better. They should have seen God's grace and liberty at work throughout the Scriptures and not fled back into bondage, seeking to take others with them. And if we were to make a contemporary extrapolation of this principle... Do you think a modern Jewish Judaizer would be satisfied with the law-keeping of a Gentile convert? Or would there likely remain some ethnic barrier that the convert could never fully surmount? Don't know. But finally, the the last point I'd like for you to consider is continually remember who you are in Christ. As children of the promise, we should live and think accordingly. All too often, Christians, as Christians, we forget our royal identity as children of the free woman. Like the prodigal, we wallow in the mud and return in, with the swine. As children of the free woman, we should neither desire to return to slavery of sin, nor should we cast aside our rights and privileges as the adopted sons of God. Instead, our conduct should befit our royal status, a status given to us by God's grace in Christ. As the opening verse in the next chapter of Galatians declares, we are to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. May God grant us grace to do that very thing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, with all humility of mind and spirit, we give you thanks for your holy word. We thank you for Christ who has saved us from the bondage of sin and liberated us unto joyful service in your kingdom. Preserve your people and keep us from falling back into slavery under the bondwoman and help us to embrace our calling as children of promise and our citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. Cause your holy word to burn brightly within your people, to light their way in the darkness, and to burn away all worldly wisdom that would lead us astray. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.